Okay, good evening, everybody. A thank you to the Greenbaum family for sponsoring tonight's cheer in honor of the yard side of Mrs. Rusi Greenbaum's grandfather, Eliezer Ben Moshe. His neshama should have an aliyah. And also a special thank you to Mr. and Mrs. Joe and Barbara Lamberson for sponsoring tonight's cheer in honor of the rabbi and the entire Rappaport family. So thank you so much for your contribution as well. Uh, tonight we had Michal Mirsky set things up in lieu of Isaac Romano. They get a big Mazel Tov as Isaac and Esti had a baby girl. So Mazel Tov. And we should continue sharing in Simchas with the whole community. And Gans Klal Yisrael, Mitz Hashem. Tati, can you tell me a story? Usually when a kid asks for a story, we have a special series of stories in the lighthouse. We have the, uh, the Schreiber Family Adventure series. People or children are not asking for a story in order to become more educated or more informed, but usually it's, uh, it's entertainment. It's amusing. If you ever watch a little child and listen carefully to a story and you just look at their face, it is so vivid, it's so clear that they're lost within the story. Well, with our, our four-year-old, whenever you're telling her any kind of, uh, it could be a true story, it could be a, something she's reading or she's hearing, she can't read yet, but her face is just clearly imagining as if she's there. Stories have been really a way of communication that we've used since the, uh, the dawn of civilization. They're extremely powerful, not just for children, but for adults as well. And the entire industry of uh, TV and movies, novels, all based on the power of drawing us in through the story. You see, when, you, when you're giving a lecture, it could be in any setting, people in, in business, trying to share a Devar Torah at the table, a rabbi speaking from the podium. Often, right, it's not that uncommon that as you're saying something very deep and very meaningful, the crowd might be doing this, <laughs> right, dozing off. And then as soon as you go into a story, suddenly everyone's eyes just open. So there's something that's so attraction, the, the, the attraction is so strong with the story and draws you in. What exactly is that power? It's interesting, the conversation that we have between Moshe and Yisro, where Moshe is trying to convince Yisro to stay with Klal Yisro. And there's a debate exactly chronologically when this conversation took place. Was it before the giving of the Torah or after? But either way, Yisro came to join Klal Yisro because he was inspired. He wanted to be part of uh, the truth. So Moshe tries to convince him Lo eilech ki imel artsi, Yisro says back, I cannot go with you. Rather, I have to go home. Ve'el moladati eilech, I have to go to the place where I was born, where I was raised. I can't continue traveling together with uh, the Jewish people. Why exactly did he want to go home? That's uh, a discussion to explore. 
But what's clear is that his motivation was, uh, was pure. He wanted to share the truth with others. He wanted to uplift his family. He wasn't going home to run away from Torah. He was going home to spread Torah. Moshe argues back, though, and he says, Please, al no tazov osanu, do not abandon us. Ki bemidbar. You understand our traveling in the desert. And you will be for us our eyes. You will be for us our eyes. The simple understanding is he had this uh, natural GPS. He knew the midbar like the back of his hand. And therefore Moshe was saying, we need your help traveling. We're wandering around in the desert. You could be so, uh, so helpful. Obviously, though, there's a lot more than his ability to navigate. There have been a Bechaya and others say that it was the Eitzah, the fact that Yisro gave Moshe counsel and Moshe understood and appreciated the Chachma, the wisdom that he had. He was telling his father-in-law, although you have pure intentions to go home and to try to uplift and, and inspire others, we need you here. You're such a, a great Baal Eitzah. We need your advice. What does it mean, that you will be eyes for us? Very strange phrase. So the Rebbe Nebuchadnezzar has one interpretation where he says, this is referring to the very practical help that you can show us the path. You will lead the way. If that's what Moshe was telling Yisrael to try to convince him to stay with Klal Yisrael, the obvious question is, if Yisrael wasn't there, how did they know where to go? If Yisrael would choose not to stay with Klal Yisrael, would the Jewish people have any clue where and when to travel? What's the answer to that question? Yes. Of course, right? They had a supernatural GPS. They had the Anan, the, the cloud, that would pick up and make it very clear, now it is time to move from point A to point B. Follow me. So the Rebbe Bechai is bothered by the question, why in the world is Moshe trying to convince Yisro, we need you to stay here with us in order to show us the way to lead us to navigate through the Midbar? Because we have no clue where we're going. That's not true. You have the supernatural GPS of the Kaddish Baruch Hu. Listen to his answer. Of a Moshe Amarkein Kedei Lechazek Lev Ketanei Amona. Moshe was trying to convince Yisrael to stay with Klal Yisrael to lead them on their journeys because he knew there were people amongst Klal Yisrael that were mekatnei amana. They were lacking faith. Shehayu him they had amongst them. Asher libam hayayoser misnachem umischazek. These people, and we have to assume they were very few and far between, but these people who were somewhat weak in their amuna, they would feel a sense of comfort and strength and security through having a leader who was a human being. 
through having Yisro actually lead the way, someone they could point to, someone they could have a conversation with, a manhig basar v'adam, that gave these mekat ne'emunah, these people who were weak of faith, it gave them a sense of security and reliance. So you take the bird's eye view, just to appreciate now the conversation that's taking place between Moshe and Yisro. Moshe is telling Yisro, really, we don't need you. We know exactly where and when to travel and the best route of getting there. And if there's traffic on the highway, we'll take the side streets. We don't need you at all. The only reason I'm asking you to stay here, Vayisa lonule naim, to be our eyes, is because I'm well aware of the fact that unfortunately we have a few people who don't have that, that real ironclad bitachon, and they're going to feel more comfortable having a, a human being to lead the way. So please stay here to make them feel more comfortable. I'd like to focus on two things here in this Rebbeinu B'chai. It's so deep. If you first climb into the, the mind of one of these people who are lacking faith, why would you feel more comfortable? Why would you feel more secure having Yisro lead the way? What's actually going to happen? Play it out. Is Yisro going to choose the direction of Klal Yisro? It's not his choice. The cloud would start to elevate and move in a particular direction, and the Jewish people would follow. So it might be that now we have this theater, we have this production taking place where Yisro is standing there in front, playing the role as the, as the manhig, Basar Vadam, as the navigator, but he's not really leading the way. He's following the cloud just like you're following the cloud. So why is that going to make you feel more comfortable having a person there? He's not really doing anything. But I think the insight we could derive from the Rebbeinu B'chaya is that because we're human, we have this attachment, we have this need to, to latch on to another human being. Even though I know that you're not in control. Even though I know that you don't know the way either. But if I could view you as the leader and I could follow you, that makes me feel more confident. Because I'm a human being, I latch on to other human beings. It's almost, you know, if you're, uh, you're home alone, the whole family's away. So often, you know, it's the evening, it's dark, and no one else is around. You might be a little bit scared. Now, why are you more scared now than if you had your children with you, right? If anything would happen, God forbid, are they going to protect you? No, right? You have to be the hero. But there's something about just having people around that makes me feel more comfortable. It sounds like the mindset of these few people in Kalal Yisrael was, as long as I could have a human being to look up to, then I feel grounded. If I don't have a human being, I might have supernatural nisim and shemayim, but eh, it's, not, it's not good enough. We need people. We need people. What's also interesting, I think this is a second insight into this Rebbeinu B'chaya, is if there's really a conversation taking place between Yisro and Moshe, and there are good reasons for Yisro to want to go back home, to share his Torah, to inspire others, 
The argument that Moshe is using to try to keep Yisro here is you're going to make a few people feel more comfortable? Are you raising their level of amun and bitachon? Not really. You're, you're, you're almost, in a sense, you're just lowering yourself to where they are to make them feel good. You're not uplifting them. Isn't the goal of, of any manhig, of any leader, any capacity, to try to uplift those around him? Don't come down to their level. Now, obviously, I assume the goal of them feeling comfortable would be to eventually grow and gain in their amun and bitachon. But right now, Moshe Rabbeinu thought, it's a chesed. You could be making a few people feel more comfortable. That's a consideration. So this is one idea, one suggestion of the Rabbeinu B'chaya as to what Moshe was saying to Yisro. And I think we can really glean from here how attached we are to seeing another human being. It gives us a sense of security, a sense of comfort, and a feeling of confidence. I want to take it one step further, though, by looking at his second interpretation. And I think this will really get into the, uh, the mindset of humanity as to why we need stories, why we crave stories, and how utilizing a koach etzir, utilizing a vision, can be more impactful than most other things in the world. The Rebbe Bechaya says another interpretation that Moshe was trying to convince his father-in-law, Vayisa lono le'enayim, how will you serve as our eyes? Le'edus. It will be a, a source of testimony for the rest of the world to see. The rest of the world is going to hear about Yisro leaving everything behind, joining the Jewish people in the middle of nowhere, sacrificing the, uh, the life of, of nobility that he was living back in Midian, to join up with this tribe. Why is he doing this? Right, there can be rumors going around, people are posting things on Facebook, you hear about Yisro, what's going on? All sorts of uh, suggestions and, and conspiracy theories, right? <laughs> But at the end of the day, everyone knows that Yisro left his home, his family, and the comfort of his surroundings to join Klal Yisrael Be'eretz Lozeru in the middle of nowhere. That's going to inspire the other people of the world to say, you know what? Maybe there's something true about this. Maybe the Jewish people are onto something. If Yisro is willing to give up everything to join them, Maybe we should look deeper into what they stand for. That's the second interpretation of the Rebbe Nebuchadnezzar. This is the approach of the Cheskudni and the Dasikenim. So we have many Rishonim taking this approach where Moshe was trying to convince Yisro, by you staying with us, by you joining Klal Yisrael, you'll be able to inspire others because now they're going to feel that Klal Yisrael has something that I want to be a part of. Did the other nations of the world know anything about the Jewish people before Yisro decided to make that move and join them in the middle of nowhere? Did the other nations of the world ever hear about the Kriyas Yamsuf and the Milchemes Amalek? Was that something that was on the, uh, on the radio, on the TV? 
Yeah. We have many, many sources that speak about the, the reality of the fact that all of the Nisim that took place, Klal Yisrael leaving Mitzrayim, that was not limited for the bubble of the Jewish people. That was HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in a sense, showing the entire world that there is a Bore Olam, there's a creator of the universe, who's Mashgiach Al Hakol, who's in ultimate control of everything. Everyone knew about Kriyas Yamsuf. Everyone knew about the exact same miracles that Yisro knew about. What was special about Yisro? That's an entire discussion unto itself. He was motivated to change. He was compelled to join the Jewish people because of all the amazing things that he heard. But everyone else heard those exact same things and they didn't choose to join the Jewish people. What's going to make the difference in their lives? Once Yisro does it. The fact that God could split the sea, eh, that's kind of cool. Uh, no need for me to leave my, my hometown and join the Jewish people. The fact that God could do unbelievable miracles for this nation, okay, that's interesting, that's intriguing. I'll read a book on it, but I'm not going to change my life. What's going to compel me to change my life? When I see another human being who changed his life. Yisro is actually making a move, a drastic move. That means there's something here to think about. Why was that more compelling? Why was that more powerful than their awareness of all of the Nisan that took place? Because when you see a person, when you see a human being making a decision, when you hear about a human being making a decision, doing something that's meaningful, I relate to that more than I relate to anything else in the world, even the supernatural. Even the explicit revelation of the divine doesn't really move me to change as much as seeing someone else who is changing. Because, like we saw from the Rebbe Yonah, we have this attachment to human beings. I, th I think the understanding behind this is, and there's actually research on the subject, the reason why we get lost into the story, the reason why we could get emotional when reading a novel we know is not true, it's fiction. The reason why people cry when watching a movie, even though no one's really dying, is because we implant ourselves into the person that I'm seeing. When I hear about you, or even more so, when I'm seeing you do something, psychologically, I feel that I'm you to some level. I could relate to you. Even if it's a cartoon. How many people have cried before when watching a cartoon? And you catch yourself for a moment. One second, one second. One second. <laughs> There's, it's a rat and a mouse. Right? Why am I crying about this? They're not even human beings. But why does it get you? Why is it emotional? Because since they're being portrayed and personified with human emotions, then I relate to that. Right? Picture two different scenarios. You're watching the most incredible real-life uh, documentary about the, the inner workings of planet Earth. 
and you're seeing incredible things with lava and explosions and different layers of rock. And then suddenly a whole landslide takes place that's actually miles beneath the surface. Incredible stuff. That's option A. Option B, right, the exact same documentary, but this time you have two radical, insane ins explorers who are actually down there, hypothetically. And as the rocks are falling, they're dodging them, and they're jumping, and they're diving, and one gets this close to losing his life. That's obviously much more exciting. Because as soon as there's a person there, I, I somehow place myself into that scene. That's the power of a story. The application of this, or the implication for us, right, striving to be Ovdei Hashem, understanding from the Rebbeinu Bachaya and the Dasakenim and others that we relate to other human beings, not just because I'm a copycat, and if I see everyone else doing something, then there's peer pressure, I want to do it myself. But it's so much deeper. When I see you acting in a certain way, I view myself in a similar way. When I see you actually getting involved with the davening, person standing next to me, and, and he's davening Shmona Esrei, and he's actually speaking to Hashem, what's really going on in his head, I don't know. But it looks so genuine. And if I'm, a, if I'm in a room of 40 people who are doing that, how does that impact my Shmones, right? It's a different davening. It's a different, it's a different hasoga, it's a different reality of, of who I am and my relationship with the Boreola. Not just because I see everyone else doing it, so I want to be like them, but I feel more like them because I'm in their presence. It's the power of a story, it's the vision, it's seeing another human being doing something that draws me in. And that's true, obviously, in a positive direction and a negative direction, but it's more powerful in a positive direction. It's more powerful in a positive direction because it's tapping in to an ingrained yashrus, a truth that we have within us. Baruch created every individual with an innate sense of truth. So when I see someone living according to that truth, I see someone who's, who's acting with, with such compassion and love and respect. That penetrates me and, and that inspires me to be more like you and I already feel more like you. If you have a conversation with someone, someone you respect, someone you look up to, and you're schmoozing with that person for 15 minutes. When you walk away from that conversation, do you want to be a better person? Do you already kind of feel like a better person? I think most of us do. That's the power of a story. The, uh, the Dasa Kanem says that when Avram Avinu was given the mitzvah of bris milah, not an easy thing to do at his age, so he was having a conversation with his Talmidim, his followers, trying to convince them to do the mitzvah. And for some odd reason, they were a little bit hesitant. So Chazal teaches us that Avram actually, he went to get advice from his good friend Mamre. And Mamre had the following suggestion. 
He said, you do it. You do it to yourself and to Yishmael. Make sure everybody sees. And through that experience of seeing you do a bris milah, that will inspire them more than any Musr shmuz. All of the amazing Kabbalah and, 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 the, and, and the deep reasons for bris milah and how it transforms a person, that's nice. Conceptually, it might be powerful, but there's nothing more influential than having your Talmidim see a human being involved with real avodas Hashem. If they see you doing it, no matter how difficult it may be for them, they're going to feel compelled to follow you because you're creating a story for them. They have an image. They're seeing an Adam Hashalim, a human being involved with real avodas Hashem. I want to be doing that same thing. <clears throat> we look in the Torah, it seems like one of the most inspirational times of the year for your average Jew was when? A few times a year, an unbelievable injection of, of Ruchnius. I'll give you a hint, it was three times a year, right? When everyone would travel to Yerushalayim. Now, the truth is, you would travel to Yerushalayim perhaps more than three times a year. If you had Meister Shani, you would eat at Yerushalayim. The experience as it's described in the Chumash as to what happens when we go to Yerushalayim the Pasuk in Parshish Re'eh says, You shall eat your Maeser Sheni in the place that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will determine, referring to Yerushalayim. In order that you will learn how to have real Yeres Hashem, real reverence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, all the days of your life. Go to Yerushalayim and you'll be inspired. So what's, uh, what's so amazing about Yerushalayim? So you think about what was going on in Yerushalayim at the time. Or when the Pasuk is teaching us going to Yerushalayim during the Beis HaMikdash, all of the amazing things happening. All of the miracles surrounding the Beis HaMikdash that were taking place daily within the Beis HaMikdash. One might have assumed that, okay, you go to Yerushalayim, you see the supernatural, and that's a, that's a chizik, that's an injection. But if you look at all the Rishonim who describe why does going to Yerushalayim give me more Yerushalayim, what is it about that, that place? They have different angles, but it all seems to have the same common thread. Listen to the Rashbam. The Rashbam says that when you see the place of the Divine Presence, the Kohanim and you'll witness the Kohanim doing their avoda, and you'll see the, the Levim duchening, the Yisrael you're going to see all of Klal Yisrael participating in the avoda of the Beis HaMikdash, That'll bring Yira Shemayim. The Chizkuni and the Sforno seem to say a similar idea. The Sforno focuses more on the, the Torah learning that's taking place. But the way he phrases it is, 
You know what happens in Yerushalayim? You have the based in Hagadol. What are they doing there? They're learning Torah and they're teaching Torah and they're pasketing, lohovin lohoros. Being exposed to that, even momentarily, that gives you Yerushalayim. So if it's the Rashbam's approach of seeing the people who were involved in the service of the Beis Amigdash, if it's the Svorno's approach that I'm, I'm, I'm in the, the, the presence of the greatest Talmidic Chachamim of our generation and I'm, I'm seeing them learn and teach. But either way, the focus is not on stuff happening around me. The Yira Shemayim is not coming from the, the, the pillar of Aish that's ascending to Shemayim. That's cool. That's cute. I'll for sure get a picture of that and bring it home, right? And I'll hang it up on the fridge. But what's going to change me? What's going to bring real, genuine Yerushalayim? It's looking at the people who are actually involved in Avodah Hashem. Look at the Kohanim and the Levim and the Yisrael and the Mamodim. Look at the Sanhedrin Hagadol. That inspires me more than anything else in the world because people relate to people and I almost put myself in your shoes. I feel more like you when I'm around you. I've noticed personally that at a funeral, during a eulogy, oftentimes there are, there are points of the eulogy that are more moving and more poignant. And observing you know, many hespedim throughout my life, I've noticed that I think what moves people the most what brings people to tears more than anything else is when the, the person who's giving the hesped speaks about the chesed. Chesed of a family member to someone who was ill. The chesed of the community joining together and being mishtatev, doing all they possibly could to, to ease the burden the chesed of uh, volunteers coming out and looking for someone who was lost. More so than the accomplishments of that person necessarily. Right? He was brilliant. He was, uh, he was a tremendous Talmud Chacham. He was caring. But when there's a story where I could picture something taking place, people relating to each other, or a person being Moser Nefesh, sacrificing selflessly for his Avodah Hashem, that moves us like nothing else in the world can. And it's not just because we might be on a, on a somewhat lower level, so we need the stories. Even the greatest personalities of all time they needed the koach atzir, they needed that, that vision to see other people do things to bring themselves to a higher plateau. It says that the, the tragic story in the end of uh, the second Sefer Shmuel, where there was a terrible famine in the land, it was devastating and people were, were dying and, and didn't know what to do. And for years this was happening and they were trying to, to do soul searching and, and find out what was the cause of this. And eventually they realized that it was based on a hate that took place years ago with Shaul. 
and they had to give over seven Jews to the Givodim. That was the decree, that's what the Givodim were asking for at the time, and they did so. David HaMelech gave over seven of the descendants of Shaul, and they were all killed. Ritzpah, Ritzpah was one of the wives of Shaul, and two of her sons were killed in this tragedy. Pasuk says in Shmuel that as soon as they were taken to the Givonim and they were cruel, cruelly killed, that she came with some sackcloth and she placed it over a rock. She basically made a small little hut for herself and she stayed there alone from the beginning of the harvest season. And what would she do there by the dead bodies of her children and the other descendants of Shaul? She would not allow any birds to go onto the dead bodies during the day. And during the night, she would make sure that no animals of the field would approach. How long was she there for, Chazal explained? She made that her permanent residence for seven months. She lived outside making sure to keep these bodies as dignified, as, as respected as possible. Nothing should be pogeya, nothing should take away from the Kavad HaMais. Vayugad ledavid, Eisa sher osa ritzba basaya, pilegesho, it was told to David what she was doing. She was not anything choshev, she wasn't well known, she wasn't even categorized as one of the wives of Shol. She was Pelegish Shol. But it was told to David what she was doing. And the very next Pasuk says, what was David's response? Vayelich David vayikach es atmos Shol ves atmos Yonasan beno. David went and he got back the bones of Shol and the bones of Yonasan. He got a group together and they went on this mission to make sure that Shaul and Yonason would have a proper kavura. Why didn't this happen earlier? They've already been dead now for a year. Chazal explained there were halachic considerations. And David felt that it was no longer the right thing to give them a kavura, to move them from where they were on the other side of the Yardane and to bring them into Eretz Yisrael. Technical halachic considerations. So then what changed? Now you change your mind because you hear about some lady doing an incredible chesed. If you had a halacha that was clear to you before, how does the halacha change that now you're exposed to someone doing chesed? But the idea is David HaMelech only assumed that was the halacha because in his present state, he didn't have that infusion of rachamim. He didn't have that overwhelming sense of, of compassion that would have given him the, the broader insight to understand that there, there could be a change of halacha. And it could be the right thing to move the body of Shol and Yonasan. What moved David? What made David HaMelech change his mind? Just the fact that he heard about some lady 
doing incredible chesed. That's the power of a story. I think the implication for us in our Vodas Hashem is fairly straightforward. We always play two roles. One role is, how can we inspire ourselves more? How can I make my Avodas Hashem more genuine, more sincere, more real? How can I do that? The answer is, be around people who inspire you. Right? The more of those people, I can make sure that I'm around. My chaverim, the people I choose to spend time with, I want to be more like you. It resonates deep inside because if you're doing something truthfully, I almost feel like I'm closer to that just by being around you. Create those stories for yourself by being around the images, the vision that you want to create for yourself. But the second role that we play is not just how do we inspire ourselves, but how do we inspire others? If you're living in a place like Yerushalayim or HaKodesh, if you're living in a place even like Lakewood, where there are so many massive Talmidei Chachamim who've been devoting their lives for years and years with Mesiris Nefesh, you have the Tzadikim B'Tzidkaniyos, HaOiskim B'Toyro. So that make sure you're around those people. Make sure you have exposure to those people. Get out of your bubble. But what do you do if you live in a place where you might not have that much exposure to, to these types of gedolim? And I can't bring my family every, every day or every week to get a bracha from the Rebbe. We have to become those gedolim. We have to become the story that our children look at and not only say, I want to do that, but I feel closer to Hashem because I'm seeing your avoda. I feel more like you because you're creating the story for me. The idea of creating a culture of gedolim doesn't mean we all have to be experts in shas and poskim. What it does mean, though, is that we have an achrayas, we have a responsibility that what I do and how I interact with you and how I... How I engage in my avodas Hashem, I'm creating your story. So the culture that we have is based on my own personal avodas Hashem. You're looking at me. Hopefully you're not judging me, but we're all looking at each other and we're all inspired or, to the contrary, we're taken down. If you're doing something for real, then I want to do something for real. When it comes to teaching, in any capacity, this is probably one of the most fundamental ideas we have. How to convey any sense of truth of Torah in a way that, that children or anyone else will hopefully appreciate it. Moshe Rabbeinu, when he came down from Har Sinai, his face was glowing. And it was so intense that the Klai Yisrael couldn't even uh, look at him. So he puts a mask on. And the truth is, this is a, a discussion for Baruch Hashem, a different time when we had to wear masks. Why is wearing a mask so detrimental? If it's the right thing, you have to do it for your health. But if it's not the right thing, why does that devastate any source of real education? 
So the Pasuk says that when Moshe would speak to Hashem, he would take off his mask, then he put it back on. And the only other time he took off his mask was when he was teaching Klal Yisrael. Took off his mask. Why are you taking off your mask when teaching Klal Yisrael? So Moshe Feinstein says, because a Rebbe has to be able to really see the faces of his Talmidim. To know, to look around the room, are you understanding, are you intrigued, are you engaged? I have to see your whole face. So by me taking off the mask, I'm able to see you better. I saw though in the Ramosha Sternbach, Tam Vadas, he says the exact opposite. He says that Moshe felt that it was necessary to take off his mask when teaching Torah because so much of what's being transmitted when you're trying to convey any machshava of Torah is not just the content, but you're transmitting yourself. If he was to keep that mask on, he would be monea tov, he'd be holding back the, the good, that, 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 that kedusha that he could bestow onto others. It wasn't just the words of Torah, it was being in the presence of Moshe Rabbeinu. So he had to take the mask off when he was teaching. To convey anything important, we have to take the mask off. The, uh, the Chazanish tells us, that when it comes to being a Rebbe, so if you were to ask anyone before coming to this year, what's more influential, what you say or who you are, I think we'd all answer, it's who you are. Right, being a role model, that's the best form of teaching. But based on, on the Rebbeinu B'chaya, based on the Dasa Kenim, based on this idea that we're creating the story for others, it's not just, I have to walk the walk, and if I don't, then there's going to be a contradiction. Then you'll view it as if I'm a hypocrite. That's for sure a concern. But what's deeper is, if I act like a mensch, if I actually live according to Torah, then that's teaching you more than anything I could possibly say because I'm creating the story for you. Right? A picture is worth a thousand words. A story is worth... More than a thousand words. I'm making it that you're climbing into me. You can't help yourself. You're a human being. I'm a human being. You're experiencing me. I'm experiencing you. I feel like I, I'm, I'm part of you. I'm being influenced by you. So the application, I think, for our own Avodah Hashem is we need to have the people around us as much as possible create the story of growth, create the story of truth. That's how we move forward. And at the same time, our responsibility is to make sure that we're not just talking the talk or walking the walk, but we can create that story for our children and those around us as well. A good Shabbos.